0: If you have a Bible, you can open it to Luke chapter 12. That's where we'll be this morning. I'm going to take this opportunity to thank all of you for uh, lots of cards and just kind words to my family, um, and particularly to my wife uh, with the loss of her grandmother. So we we just greatly appreciate that. And um, man, we have so many in our church who've lost people this year. Uh, so much uh, mourning that we have done uh, together, and so. Um, it is uh, not something you relish to deal with death together as a church and yet at the same time I know it's a great comfort to our family uh, that we know we're not walking alone, that we know we have people who are going through the same things as us and uh, we've been able to uh, walk together with them. Uh, you may not, uh, may or may not know our, our brother Buddy Poe went home to be with the Lord uh, this past weekend and so it's yet another family that we're, uh, we're walking through this with and, and comforting. So be praying for Madeline and the entire family. But um, we get through these things together as a church. Uh, when we say doing life together, it is eating food together, reading the Bible together. But it's more than that. It's walking through mourning and, and grieving and um, sharing tears together. So thankful for the local church uh, at a time like this. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask him to bless this time in the word and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your mercy and comfort for those who mourn. And we turn to your word this morning. Um, It is where truth is uh, contained for us. And uh, we come to the word and and we find comfort in the midst of our mourning. We also find um, strong directives, Lord, in terms of what the attitude of our heart needs to be. So I pray that uh, from myself uh, to um, the folks sitting in in the seats this morning to the folks in the live stream that we would all lord have uh, ears to hear this morning and really um, heed your words listen to them closely and uh, that we would feel compelled as we leave here lord to fear you and you alone we pray this in jesus name amen well that is our word for the day it's fear uh some people pursue fear I have a friend who owns a restaurant, he, he has had a pretty crazy time during COVID, so he took two weeks, went away by himself to a cabin, and while he was there, he realized that there was a skydiving uh, business, like a mile up the road, where you could go and sign up and jump out of a plane. So he just did it on a whim. He just woke up, he found out about it that morning, drove straight to the place, got on a plane, jumped out. I'm not going to say I'd never do it. Who has actually done it? Who's jumped out of a plane skydiving or jumped out of a plane as you were serving the military? Some of you are probably like, that's when I jumped out of a plane. So, okay, um, good for you. I feel like I'd have to really work myself up to that, you know, for a couple of years, okay, decades even uh, before I could do that. And then after those decades pass, then you're too old to jump out of the plane. You don't do it. So that's probably, that's probably my, my path for skydiving. Some people pursue fear, though. They love it. They, they, they want to ride roller coasters. Uh, they, they ski on the black diamond slopes. My wife and I were watching skateboarding. I'm still struggling with skateboarding being an Olympic sport. I'm like, I'm not really grasping that yet. I'm not really there. I struggle to see a guy in like rolled up khakis out there like competing for medals. Uh, but hey, it takes a lot of skill. And I was watching it and I'm thinking, how do you decide you're going to just get on this board and like jump on a railing? You know what I mean? Like, how do you decide one day you're going to do that? Well, you got to love fear and you got to pursue it. Uh, some people see scary movies, they go to haunted houses where they pay for people to jump out at them, you know, they pursue fear. Other people avoid fear at all costs. They do not go to scary movies, they watch rom-coms, they opt for the rides that stay on the ground, and they might get in a plane to go where they need to go, but under no circumstances are they going to jump out of a plane. So, and, and, and most people are probably some mixture of these two profiles, right? Like, I ride roller coasters, but you're not even getting me on the kiddie slopes when it comes to skiing. Like, it just feels unnatural for me to get on those things, and I'm not doing it. So um, some of you love skiing, but you probably wouldn't watch a scary movie uh, under any circumstances. When we think of fear being a part of our everyday lives, most of us probably would think that's unproductive, okay? Uh, Because you would think that We have fears about all sorts of things. We have fear of tomorrow. We have fear of health. We have fear about money. We have fear about the future of the nation. And that these are fears we may indulge in from time to time. We give in to them. But we know they really don't do much good. We don't just want to live in fear. So the idea of living in fear uh, seems... Uh, counterproductive. It doesn't seem like something we should be pursuing. Even if you love fear in the sense that you're like, go ride roller coasters and jump out of airplanes, you don't want to live in fear. Nobody wants to live in fear. And yet this morning, we see Jesus telling us there is a type of fear we need to live in, that there is a sort of fear that everybody needs to pursue. So I'm going to read chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 7. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more they can do. But I will warn you, to, uh, warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. So coming off last week, which was all about hypocrisy, we have Jesus picking up the same subject matter in chapter 12, uh, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He's left the home of this Pharisee where he went in and just verbally uh, just smote uh, Pharisees and the lawyers, put three woes on the table, three for the Pharisees, three for the lawyers. They stay behind because they're plotting on how they might catch him and saying something wrong and then bring an accusation against him. Jesus walks out into a mass of people. And they are trampling one another to uh, just get to him. And he starts speaking to his disciples. And when I say his disciples, that's probably not just the 12. That's probably uh, the greater group that is following him at this point. It's the 12 and the large band of followers that he's now gained that are following him around. Not everybody in this crowd are his disciples. Some are just there because they want to see the show. Some are there because they want to hear the teaching. They've heard about him, But his disciples would be those who are following him on his road to the cross from town to town. Now, let's skip down to verse 5, because that's the heart of what Jesus is saying here in this passage. and In a lot of ways, the next two weeks are are connected, but um, but for this morning, verse 5 is the heart of it. Where he says, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And so Jesus tells his disciples, they should not fear people who can only kill the body, that they should fear the one who can kill the soul, the one who has the authority to cast the soul into hell. And there's only one who has that authority, and he's talking about God. He is talking about his Father, And this is the productive fear that all of us should be living in. This is the productive fear that all of us should be pursuing. The Greek word here for fear is phobeo, and we get our English word phobia from it. And it really has kind of three strands that make up this Greek word. On one hand, fear means to be struck with dread. But it also means to have reverence. And it also means to have awe. It's all of these things at one time. Dread, reverence, and awe. That's the sort of fear of the Lord that Jesus is speaking to here. It's not just one of these things. It's not just two of these things. It's all of these things at once. To fear the Lord is to have a mysterious mixture of these three things. Many people talk about the fear of the Lord simply as having awe for the Lord and reverence for the Lord. But you can't Uh, ignore the fact that the Greek word phobeo at its core means fear. And you can't take the dread out of fear. Some have compared it to the way a child feels about their father, and I think that's good. I think that's correct. I grew up not with a good dad, but with a great dad. I was just blessed to have a great dad. Mike Howard Sr. is a great dad. And I was in awe of him. Growing up, I was in awe of how he could fix pretty much anything that I broke. If I brought it to him, he could fix it. I was in awe of the fact that I had friends whose families would take their cars to mechanics, and we never did that, because my dad, whatever was wrong with the car, he'd fix it in the driveway. He'd just do it right there. I was just in awe of all the skills he had, the strength that he had. You know there's a dad's strength, right? Like, if you see a dad, even if he's not built, don't mess with him, because there's just a certain level of strength God gives you once you have a child. It's called dad strength, and I think that you also get it just from carrying that kid around for a couple of years at theme parks and such. So uh, I I was in awe of his strength, all of that. I had reverence for him. I had reverence for him in the sense that I did not want to transgress the rules of the house and provoke him to anger. In fact, I had dread over the idea of provoking him to anger. My dad was not a drunkard, he was not a mean cuss, anything like that. But I still had dread over the idea of crossing them because I knew he was the head of the household. I knew that he had the authority to give and to take away. I fear that the postmodern American church is all too eager to adapt to the sensibilities of culture, and we have lost track of the idea of fearing God. We have replaced awe with emotion that is stirred up by worship atmospheres created with certain lighting and fog machines and and, and synths, right? Now, those aren't all bad things, and of themselves are not evil, but if we rely on them to create an atmosphere instead of pursuing actual awe for the Lord, I don't think it's good. We've replaced reverence with pragmatism. Instead of being concerned with reverently obeying what the Lord says in His Word, it's, hey man, whatever works, if it gets them in the door. And we've replaced dread with self-help preaching that's more concerned with self-esteem and life in the world than the death of self and life to God it's a devastating thing to see the church lose track of the fear of the lord because the bible emphasizes to us repeatedly how important the fear of the lord is the old testament repeats this phrase at least six times in the wisdom literature the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom you see that repeated and the knowledge of the holy one is understanding if you want to be wise then fearing god is where you start On the other hand, listen to what David says about the ungodly in Psalm 36. He says, Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. The ungodly person has no fear of God. But the godly person is fearing the Lord and is wise because that's where wisdom begins. It's tragic when you think of how little the average person fears God. They're created by God in His image, they have the morality of God written on their hearts, right? There are things that we know from birth are right and wrong because God wrote that on our hearts. And if you don't believe me, just go take like a a toy from a one-year-old and they'll tell you stealing is wrong through their, their weeping and their wailing, right? Nobody has to teach that to them. They know it. There's a majestic world around them that demands They admit there is a majestic creator, and yet people live their lives in open rebellion against God. They have no fear of continuing on in their sin. They live as if this life is all there is, and judgment day is never going to come. Which is why Proverbs 1, verse 7 says that while the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord, fools despise wisdom and instruction. They despise it because they despise the beginning of wisdom. They loathe the idea of fearing God because it interferes with the false reality they have created where whatever is right in their own eyes is what is right. That's the foolishness we see in the world, but it should not be a hallmark of the church. The people of God must fear God. It's where true wisdom begins, and we should be pursuing it relentlessly. We should be asking the Spirit to dig up parts of our hearts and lives where we do not fear God. Because we loathe the idea of not fearing Him. So with that foundation laid, we see three reasons why we should be fearing the Lord in this passage. Three important points about fear. And here's the first one, and it picks right up where we left off last week. The fear of the Lord is the antidote for hypocrisy. The fear of the Lord is the antidote for hypocrisy. We talked a lot about religious hypocrisy last week, about the evil of it, the damage it does. Here we have Jesus warning against it in verse 2. He tells his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. I'm not a baker. My wife will tell you that. She does a great job baking things. I've never really tried, and honestly, I'm kind of scared to, to bake. Because if I was to be good at it, that would be the end of my health. Right right now, I, I rely on everybody else to provide baked goods. If I could start providing them for myself, I don't think that would be very good. So I just I don't even try. I don't even go there. I just know it's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. But uh, leaven is the raising agent that was placed in dough. Okay, So I don't know much about baking, but I know it's like yeast. It, it permeates the dough at every level. And this is a picture of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They had this extravagant public religion, right? They, they loved going around and kind of glad-handing in the marketplaces and everybody knew who they were and they had the important seat in the synagogue. But privately, their souls were contaminated. And they contaminated everybody that their false teaching came in contact with. Now, the disciples, the temptation for them to engage in this sort of hypocrisy would probably come in a different form than the Pharisees. The sort of hypocrisy they're going to be tempted with is, well, if the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus and catch Jesus and hurt Jesus, then they might try to trap us and catch us and hurt us too. So privately, we might be friendly with Jesus, love Jesus, be intimate with Jesus, uh, follow Him, obey His teachings, but publicly, we're going to deny Him. Because we're scared of what people might do to us. We're scared of what the Pharisees and the lawyers could do to us if they got their hands on us. That's the sort of hypocrisy that they're going to be tempted to engage in, where they publicly keep a distance from Jesus. They follow him privately. Some of us do that, don't we? I mean, there's people we've worked with for 5, 10, 15 years. We talk to every day. They don't know a thing about our faith because we keep it for the weekends. So their hypocrisy is going to be different from the Pharisees in its flavor, but it's still hypocrisy. It's still doing one thing publicly, doing something else privately. It, it, it's going to be contaminating. Hypocrisy is built on a myth, and it's a tempting myth to believe in, right? And, and here's the myth, that you can live a secret life that's different from your public profession of faith and nobody will ever know. That is the myth of hypocrisy. The implied lie of hypocrisy is you can fool people on earth, there's no accountability with heaven. There's no accountability with God. And of course, this is silliness. And Jesus points that out in verse 3 when he says, Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. So you cannot get away with a life of deceit and cover-ups. You might attempt it, and if you do, you're simply doing what your first parents did, right? I mean, as soon as Adam and Eve sin in the garden, what do they do? They, They start trying to sew together underwear from leaves. Trying to hide from God. They want to cover their nakedness. They want to cover their shame. This is the same thing that we do. And even if you get away with it in this life, you will not get away with it when this life ends. Because on the day that Christ returns, everything currently covered up will be revealed. Everything hidden will be made known. There is no secrecy. Secrecy itself is a myth. It's the myth that hypocrisy is built on. And this goes for our actions, but it also goes for our words. Matthew 12, verse 36, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give in accounting for it in the day of judgment. Every careless word will be exposed. Every Christless action will be shown for what it is. And I think that as a believer, you might read this text and you go, man, that's going to be really rough for non-Christians. but you're not exempt from the word of judgment. It won't be a heaven and hell judgment, but uh, we learned this in our 1 our Corinthians study we've been doing on Wednesday nights. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says the foundation of the church is Christ. Everybody needs to be careful about how they build on that foundation. Those who build on the foundation of Christ by preaching the word of the cross, he says that... Uh, their works will be like gold and silver and precious jewels and they will have reward in heaven but those who build with wood and hay and straw will see their building burn up in the fire of God's judgment and they will escape as one through flames but their work will not and the same goes for our careless words and the same goes for our Christless actions and what that means for us as believers then is we should take sanctification if we fear God really 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 seriously sanctification is that process in which God is separating you from your sin and God's doing that now he's sanctifying you now and that's his work but we read in Philippians chapter 2 that you have a role to play in sanctification that you are to work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling so throughout your Christian walk God is revealing sin to you and you are working to kill that sin As John Owen uh, said, to mortify the flesh. R.C. Sproul says God's gracious toward us by not showing us all of our sin at once because we wouldn't be able to bear it. Can you imagine that? If the day that you are saved, God was to go, okay, here's all the sin that's in your life. you got 80 years. How overwhelmed you would feel, right? You'd be like, I can't get rid of this. What am I going to do, right? It, it, It would crush you. But He is merciful and gracious to progressively reveal it to you. And so you deal with some of that sin, you you put it to death, and then He shows you new sins. And as that happens, you are conformed to the image of Christ as you deal with each sin. If we fear God, then we will work out our salvation with fear and trembling. If we do not fear God... We will not work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We will think we can live however we want. There will be no responsibility for our words, no responsibility for our actions before God's throne. And if we live that way consistently, what we might be revealing is a lack of saving faith in our hearts in the first place. Fearing God is an antidote to hypocrisy. It's a remedy. As we fear God and we deal with our sin, our public and private lives match up more and more hypocrisy is put away, and our lives are pleasing to God. Our lives will be a witness to men. The second point this morning, fear of the Lord is the antidote to hypocrisy. The fear of the Lord is the antithesis of people-pleasing. I don't always do alliteration, but sometimes it falls into place. This was one of those messages. So you get three A's this morning. It's the antithesis of people-pleasing. As, as I mentioned, the disciples of Jesus... If they're going to be tempted to engage in hypocrisy, it's probably going to come in the form of close to Jesus in private, afraid to identify with him in public because of those ruling authorities, right? It's the sin of Peter. It's the sin of Peter at the end of the Gospels when the Lord is being arrested and the Lord is going to be crucified. And three times uh, during those events, he denies knowing Jesus because he had fear of what the world would do to him. And so he refused to show Jesus the devotion in public that he pledged to him in private at the Last Supper when he said, no way, I'll never do that. Now Peter repented of this sin, and he was restored. You can repent of this sin and be restored as well. But with repentance, we should desire for the sin to cease. We should want to end our participation with it. And like with hypocrisy, the answer is found in fearing the Lord. If you are concerned with people pleasing, if that's your number one concern, not pleasing God, but pleasing people, then you are afraid of those who can kill the body. Now, not all persecution or suffering for our faith ends with martyrdom. In fact, as Americans, we're pretty, it's pretty foreign to us even, to even consider that, all right? All right. A lot of us thought we were being persecuted when they told us to wear masks. That wasn't persecution. That may have been agitation uh, from the government, but you were not being persecuted because you were a Christian, because my pagan friends were made to wear masks too, okay? When we're talking about persecution, we're talking about somebody coming against you and grabbing you because of your faith in Jesus in particular. And they are wanting to inflict suffering and harm upon you because of that. And again, when it comes to actual physical suffering, because our faith is pretty foreign to us as Americans, not so much to our brothers and sisters around the world. And it could be coming here soon. But even if that happens, the worst thing somebody can do to you is to kill your body. They can't do more to you than that. Now you're like, well, that's pretty bad. I mean, that's my life. Yep, that's your physical life. That's a high price to pay for the gospel, but that's the highest price somebody on this earth can make you pay for the gospel. They can't go further than that. They can't touch your soul. They can't mess with your eternity. They don't have the power. They don't have the ability. They can take breath from your lungs. They cannot take life from your soul. God, on the other hand, has the ability to kill more than just the body. He has the power to kill the soul by casting it into hell. Jesus says yes i tell you fear him we don't like to talk this way jesus is basically holding hell up and saying don't fear men fear the one who can cast you into this place right this is not a seeker sensitive way for jesus to talk this is not culturally palatable this is not politically correct but it's what he says and we can't run from it We can't trade it in for spiritual platitudes that soothe the mind, but do nothing to warn us about the wrath that is to come. And honestly, I would tell you, if you regularly listen to and read preachers who never, ever talk about hell, then you're reading and listening to the wrong preachers. Because Jesus talked more about hell than he talked about heaven so we, we can't succumb to the era of therapeutic preaching that 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 pleases men we have to preach the full counsel of the word and here's what jesus is saying in the word you ought to be afraid of the reality of god's eternal judgment of hell like you you, you ought to not when when it comes to your mind you ought to not go oh, i don't want to think about that isn't that what we do with things sometimes i mean that's compartmentalizing right Like, we'll think about something that could happen six months from now. You're like, I can't deal with that right now. I'm going to box it up and put some tape over it. We'll sit that over here. When I'm actually able to deal with that, we'll get it out and we'll deal with it. I don't think we ought to do that with hell. Like, let it occupy your heart and mind for a bit. Really think about the reality of being cut off from everything that is good for eternity. Being cut off from God and from love and mercy and grace and enjoyment joy itself. Think about the idea of physical pain for an eternity. Because one day you're going to get to the end of this life and you don't want to end up on the wrong side of God's judgment. It's going to be too late to unbox it then. You've got to think about it now. You've got to deal with it now. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 32. He's going to say the same thing and. Luke 12 next week. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. To confess Jesus before men is evidence of being a Christian. It's a definitively Christian thing to do. Your confession of Christ does not earn your salvation. Christ does that on the cross. But your public profession of your salvation is is a fruit of your salvation. Your public profession of faith is a fruit of your salvation. But he also says, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So in the same vein, to deny Christ publicly is a distinctively non-Christian thing to do. And your lack of willingness to identify with Him publicly may be a sign of not having salvation at all. Now, we aren't public about our faith just because we feel guilted into it because we're scared of hell. But fearing God's ability to judge doesn't mean you're only motivated by guilt. It means that you recognize with dread and with reverence and with awe that His power is superior to the power of any earthly threat. So when you start to count the cost of your actions, you weigh it out and you go, these people might be able to take my job These people might be able to take my home. They might be able to take my family. They might even be able to take my life. The things that are most precious to me. I saw a movie last week, and in it, Nicolas Cage had this line that stuck out to me. The rest of the movie stunk, but this was a good line. He said, you get very few things to care about on this earth. People who persecute you might be able to take away all the things you care about on this earth. But when you start weighing out, you go, they can do that, but this one over here is the only one who can take my soul. He's the most powerful one who is deserving of my allegiance. He has the only opinion that matters, and so I'll confess him. John Knox was a Scottish reformer who lived in the 1500s, and his life was a lot like Daniel's. In fact, if I meet John Knox in heaven, I want to say, how often did you just read about Daniel in your life when you were suffering? I say he was a lot like Daniel because Knox was often in exile. And yet, everywhere he went when he was exiled, he impressed everybody that was around him. So again, very much like Daniel. So he was exiled out of Scotland because he tried to reform the church. He was only 32 years old. And they they said, you got to go. You get out of here. So he went to England he rose up in the ranks of King Edward VI's court. And during that time, he did a significant work on the Book of Common Prayer for the Church of England, and he reformed it, meaning he took away a bunch of the man made traditions and he said, let's get this thing back to the scriptures. But when Mary I took the throne, she reestablished Catholicism in England, so he was on the run again. He got kicked out, so he's in exile again. This time he goes to Geneva, then he goes to Frankfurt. When he gets to Frankfurt, the Church of England had a big hold there, and so he had to run away again. Finally, he gets to go back to Scotland. his homeland. Homeland, homeland. And at that point... Scotland was ready for the Reformation. And so he brought about the Scottish Reformation. It took full effect. He helped lead it. And he preached faithfully until his final days. Knox was always on the run because he was convinced of the truth, convinced about the truth, committed to the truth. He feared God over man. He didn't back down. And in the end, when they put him in the ground in his final resting place until Jesus returns and his body is resurrected... Here's what they wrote on his grave. Here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of man. Who do you fear? What are they going to put on your gravestone? How tragic is it that the reverse of that tends to happen? That some fear men so much they never fear the face of God. Fear of man is like shackles around your feet and cuffs around your hands. It it paralyzes you. It it keeps you from taking on any sort of real challenge in the name of God's glory. And the only way we'll be free from it is to fear the stronger one, the strongest one, to heed Jesus' words and fear God and God alone. Final point this morning, third A for you here. Fear of the Lord is the adversary of worry. Look in in verses 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. In Matthew's parallel account in Matthew 10, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. So putting Matthew and Luke together, it seems like you could get a deal on sparrows down at the market. Okay? Okay? You go down there, for a penny, you can get two sparrows, but for two pennies, you can get five, right? So it's basically buy four, get one free when it comes to the sparrows, okay? Now, that's like a cereal deal at the grocery store. You can get that type of deal at the grocery store on some Cocoa Puffs, you know what I mean? You don't find deals like that at the jeweler. You don't walk into a jeweler and they say, hey, buy four, get one free, because jewels are too valuable, And yet, even though these sparrows you can get a deal on and they just throw one in there for nothing, not a single one of them would fall to the ground without God taking notice. The same way, God knows the hairs on your head. The average person has about 100,000 hairs on their head. Some of us a little less than others. God knows, though. God knows exactly how many every person has. Now, if... If I lost a finger today, that would be an event, okay? Like, I'd want the Daily Press notified if I lost a finger, you know? Like, that's a big deal. Even if I lost a fingernail, there'd probably be a social media post about it. A lot of griping. Might even call a couple of people and ask for prayer, you know? But a hair, you don't even think about a hair. Because if you lose a hair, you don't even notice most of the time. The hair is the, it's the sparrow of the body, And yet, God has every single one of them numbered. So you get Jesus' point here. The disciples of Christ might have been scared about what their enemies could do to them. It might have caused them great worry to think about losing their lives. But what they needed to remember is that if God is as concerned with things as mundane and valueless as sparrows and hares, how much more does He care for His kids, for His children, for His family? It's reminiscent of Jesus' words in Matthew 6, which are also going to be repeated here in, in chapter 12 in just a couple of weeks. Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil nor do they spin, yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? We are under the gaze of God. We are very small in comparison to God. In fact, when we think about all that God has made and just how quick and small our lives are, we might feel pretty insignificant. But Louis Giglio has this term that I love, uh, that I've heard him use, which is, we are significantly insignificant. And that's absolutely right. We may seem insignificant in the grand scheme of things, but we are not insignificant to God. That is what Jesus is teaching us here. In fact, Jesus' entire life and his entire mission tells us the opposite. Paul states it in Romans 8 like this, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? If we've been given Jesus, if Jesus has laid His life down for us, if we've gotten the greatest thing we could possibly get, then why would we not trust God to give us the other things as well? What Jesus is saying to them is don't be afraid of what people can do to you not only because God is the one that can throw a soul into hell but don't be afraid of what people can do to you because you matter to God. And that should be our refrain every time we start to think He doesn't see every time we start to think he doesn't care, every time we're tempted to take matters into our own hands because of that old pastime of worry, we should remind ourselves that we do not need to be afraid because we matter to God. It's a tension that we live in as believers. Fear God's judgment, but don't be afraid of God because of his careful, sovereign love for you. Again, it's like a, a, a child and a good father. We have reverence, we have awe, we have dread, but we are not afraid to boldly draw near because of how he has shown his love to us in Christ. John Sherwood is a pastor in London, England. He's been there pastoring for 35 years. It was really hard to have church there during COVID, so in late April, he went outside of Uxbridge Station and he got on a little stool and he preached the gospel. And in his open-air sermon, he said marriage is defined by God as one man and one woman. That's the only thing he said about sexual ethics. He didn't say anything about transgender people or about um, homosexual marriage or anything like that. The only thing he said is marriage is defined by God as one man and one woman. The police came and yanked him down off of his platform. He was arrested on charges of homophobic hate speech. Here's what Sherwood said. He said, when the police approached me, I explained that I was exercising my religious liberty and my conscience. I was forcibly pulled down from the steps and suffered some injury to my wrist and to my elbow. I do believe I was treated shamefully. It should have never happened. I don't know if that's coming to America or not. But to say, no, that's far-fetched. That'll never happen here, I think is delusional. And what I want to say to you this morning as we talk about a fear of the Lord is I hope you have the stomach for it. I hope you know which hills to die on. Because the time may be approaching where we have to pick them. What's it going to cost our our children and our grandchildren to identify with Christ in their generations? Statistics say that Everett or Beckett will become a preacher may not happen some days i don't want it to happen some days i do but statistics say when a pastor's got two boys one of the two will probably end up going into ministry what would it cost one of my boys to do this in his lifetime we better fear the lord we better fear the lord in such a way where hypocrisy is removed from our lives We better fear the Lord in such a way where we do not fear man over him. We better fear the Lord in such a way where we do not let our hearts be eaten up by worry over these things because we know who ultimately cares for us. And we better teach our kids and our grandkids to fear the Lord because we will need the wisdom of God to navigate the waters and that is where wisdom begins. Let's pray. Father, I pray for John Sherwood this morning. Sounds like a John Knox sort of fellow. Preaching the gospel faithfully. And now in England, which growing up, I'd think of places like Canada and England, just like, you know, similar to America, and you can pretty much do the same sort of things. He's getting, you know, physically injured. For the sake of the gospel could that be us 10 15 years from now five years from now will that happen in our lifetime lord will it happen in the lifetime of our children and our grandchildren we love religious liberty could it be yanked away from us we don't know we don't want to live in fear of those things we only want to live in fear of you but we know if we live in fear of you it's going to help us to be faithful no matter what like pastor Sherwood and so, God, I pray that in our convictions, that in our decision-making, in our living, in our Bible reading, in our praying, in our fasting, in our witnessing, in all of these things, God, that we would fear you, and that in light of our fear of you, we would have great wisdom, and that we would be prepared for whatever is to come. May hypocrisy and the fear of man and, and the fear of what people could do to us be put far out of our hearts and minds that that would be part of our sanctification as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling God that a fear of all of those things would be put away and that it would be replaced with a fear of you the one who can kill the soul and we thank you that we don't have to worry about that this morning because Jesus died and suffered in our place which is a reminder to us that this is a great loving compassionate God that we fear So, if anything is said about Seaford Baptists, Lord, may they say that we are a people that fear the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.